Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hello, good morning or good afternoon, wherever you are. You're watching The Hash on Coindesk TV. I'm Will Foxley, joined today by Jensen Assey and Adam B. Levine, the host of The Daily Market Show, also on Coindesk. Check that out after you watch us this morning. We have four stories for you today. Jen, you are kicking us off with the first one. Let's talk about DeFi and some new regulations on the forefront. Yeah, well, the U.S. Treasury is saying that DeFi services are not compliant with AML and anti-terrorist financing rules. They said that the most significant current illicit finance risk in this corner of the crypto sector is DeFi's compliance. The Treasury said that thieves, scammers, ransomware, Cyber criminals and actors for the Democratic People's Republic of Korea are using DeFi to launder proceeds from crime. Now, this came out in a recent report that I believe was published this morning. Adam, I'm going to toss this one off to you. Are you surprised to hear this? Because I sure am not. I mean, I think it's an important reminder that of all the challenges that exist in our world today, the thing we really need to be concerned about is North Korea. I'm joking here. I mean, like, it's, it's ridiculous. It continues to be, you know, these people remain threatened by these types of systems. And there's lots of different ways that I can say that, but that's really what it comes down to. If you want to get into the specifics of this, when you look at DeFi, DeFi is inherently a neutral system. And there are ways that you can compromise that neutrality. But a lot of the value that comes from DeFi actually is that neutrality. And so the argument that they make is, well, anybody can use this. That means that thieves and criminals can use it. But the other side of that is that anybody can use this, which means that if you're an oppressed, you know, freedom fighter living in a country that has a dictatorship, you know, or is undergoing something else terrible, your government can't stop you from using it either. So the question is, is it better to empower people in ways that might also benefit criminals? Or is it better to, you know, go after criminals in ways that will likely entangle normal people? And the government uh, of the U.S. and governments around the world have clearly made the choice that they're willing to sacrifice the happiness of normal people if it allows them to at least pretend like they're getting closer to that stated goal that they have. So I'm very skeptical of this story as with all of these stories. Will, what do you think? Yeah, Naraj Agarwal, who's a head of comms at Coin Center, had a great tweet that I think just summarizes my entire opinion in one. This is actually from 2021, but I'm going to read it here. He said, I'm sorry that your warrantless surveillance regime 
was built on the assumption that people would always need intermediaries to transact. And I think that encapsulates this whole thing, right? Because DeFi allows you to use this neutral blockchain to talk with another person on the other side of the world, or they could be next door. It doesn't really matter. It's hard to know. Thing is, there's no intermediary between the two of you. There's just a software that connects two people together. There's not a central actor here. Again, it's just the software. And the software is increasingly becoming decentralized to the point where the software is almost becoming agnostic, really, really is neutral technology. And these government groups, these old laws, the Bank Secrecy Act, and even older stuff than that, it didn't deal in this world, right? This world never existed before 2008, 2009. And now these laws have to grapple with something that is uncharacteristic to anything that was in the legislation. And there's going to be some problems. So if you look at the Coindesk article, and if you go into the report itself, you'll see some things that just like they don't square well, right? They're talking about KYC and AML for DeFi platforms and how these quote unquote entities need to put this into their systems. It's like, that's not really how any of this works. So there's going to be some friction here. I think the last point I want to point out here before I hand it back over to Jen is that the report does say that some of these systems claim to be decentralized and they're not. I think that's going to become like the pain point, right? If you claim to be decentralized and you're not, there's going to be some problems for you in the future. Jen, over to you. Yeah, the report sets out to outline the hazards of technology, which I think is just funny already right off of the bat. Adam, I completely agree with you. I think if we just, you know, take a sample of government communications from the last year, I think the more scared they are, the more they mention North Korea. Uh, I'd love to just see like a little compilation of that. Um, The report is also calling from input from the private sector. So there's this air of collaboration here. They're saying, we encourage the private sector to come and talk to us to help us figure out how we can look at DeFi and how we can implement AML uh, and KYC into DeFi products. I don't think we've seen that play out in the past. You know, they always say the private sector needs to come and talk to us and the private sector comes and talks to them. And then nothing, nothing tangible, nothing good comes from it. It's just a lot of talking back and forth. So I don't know. I wonder if this is just a report to air the government's fears when it comes to DeFi and and not much will happen from here. The other point I want to bring up before I toss it back to you, Adam, is they talk about this AML and KYC, right? They talk about bad actors using DeFi for crime. But we see time and time again, when DeFi protocols are used to move money around, those assets often get frozen. We're able to track those assets a lot quicker than if these bad actors were using cash or things from the traditional financial system. And so I would love to see that brought up in a report like this. But Adam, we'll give it to you for last words. Yeah, I mean, there are just so many assumptions that go into these types of things. And again, like to the industry comment perspective, you can kind of think about this like the government is used to regulating horse-drawn carts and they're you know, <laughs> used to having the need for there to be rules about how you deal with horse poop, right? Because horses poop a lot. It was a big problem when this was a thing. And so now they're looking at these uh, you know, electric vehicle manufacturers that perform the same broad function as a horse-drawn cart does, but they don't have any problem with, with horse poop. And so the, they're, they're like, well, we think that the horse poop rules should apply to you guys too. And so you need to have the same facilities on the back of your devices as these guys do. It's just fair. And so when you try to apply those rules to it, it's nonsensical and it's just a giant waste of everybody's time. But it does serve the purpose of keeping things ambiguous, of stretching things out. And that really is the game that these governments have been playing for quite some time now. Will? I just got to say, man, you are on point with the metaphors these days. Yesterday you had the the broken leg one and now today with the horses. Did you just come up with that now? It's really good. Okay, let's go over to macOS land. Someone popped this up yesterday on the timeline and it's definitely dominating Bitcoin Twitter right now. And that is the fact that inside every macOS 
computer since 2017 has been hidden a little paper called the Bitcoin white paper. This was first surfaced a while ago on a blog post, but didn't really get a lot of attention. And then it was surfaced again on another blog post, and it has been circulating quite a bit. It's deep within some files, so it'd be pretty hard to find it, but it does come standard on most Mac computers since 2017. Anything earlier from that does not seem to have it. Now the speculation is starting, right? Why is somebody putting the Bitcoin white paper into all these computers? There's some comments thinking about the fact that maybe we just want this white paper to be everywhere. Other people thinking like, you know, it's a pretty light paper. Maybe they just like needed it to test the software, have it in there, you know, just add it in there for kicks and giggles. We don't really know. Maybe there's a Bitcoin maximalist working deep inside Apple trying to orange pill as many people as possible. So we thought he'd do this. Speculation in anyone game. Jen, I'll throw it over to you for your thoughts. Is Satoshi Tim Cook? No, just joking. That's not my yes. take. But, <laughs> yes. No, I actually love this. I love that as a community, that's pretty like, you know, we're pretty small. We all talk to each other. There are these like little Easter eggs that we can hold on to and have joy throughout dark times. I absolutely love it. I, my theory is that Satoshi works at Apple. I'm just going to keep that theory going. You know, that's what I'm going to take away from the story. But there are a lot of fun theories within the story. One of them is that a coder from Apple used this as an act of defiance against Craig Wright, who was out there suing everyone who published the paper for copyright. They said that, you know, Craig Wright wouldn't be able to take on a company like Apple. So maybe that's what happened here. I love that we're talking about this a day after Satoshi's birthday. And that's where I'm going to leave it. Adam? Yeah, so I did confirm right before we got on the show this morning that this is actually a thing and that if you, uh, again, get into the terminal and enter that command to open you know, the file that's fairly nested, then you will find that. I was startled when I did it, though, uh, because <laughs> as I entered the terminal command and as the white paper popped up, I was wearing my headphones for this show. And we had very ominous techno music that kind of swelled around <laughs> that. And I was like, oh, my God, not only is it here, but it has a soundtrack. That turned out to not be correct. But yeah, no, I, I like the Craig Wright explanation for this. I think that that makes a lot of sense. And of all of the plausible things that we could believe about this, I'm going to go with that one just personally, because I think it's the funniest. Will? Yeah, I think for listeners who might not know about this whole controversy, Craig Wright was a longtime Bitcoin developer, if you want to loosely call him that. And then he claimed at one point to be Satoshi Nakamoto himself, actively suing anybody who was publishing the white paper. And so maybe in this case, a Bitcoin maximalist or someone who just really cares about Bitcoin decided to plant this Bitcoin white paper inside of a ton of computers all over the world at once. So then it basically kill any case Craig Wright had, which is kind of a fun story. You know, I didn't really put that together. I'm kind of impressed that someone put that together so fast. Just me, like I'm thinking about it. I bet there's someone at Apple who really likes Bitcoin. They're working on like the files and the software for when we're releasing these computers. And they're like, I'll just slip this in here. No one's going to notice. Maybe one day they will. And I hope that person is having a really good day today. Jen, over to you. You know, I mentioned that it was Satoshi's birthday yesterday. George Kaloudis wrote this really fun piece uh, on his birthday. And in that, he said, I, I, don't, I don't have this exact quote in front of me, but he said, it doesn't actually matter who Satoshi is. And so I love that we've taken this little Easter egg. We're talking about who Satoshi could be. But I think the fundamental thing here is that we're talking about the Bitcoin white paper and we continue to do so through fun things like this. And hopefully, you know, someone who hasn't read it is watching this or hears about it through news like this and then reads it, and it's introduced to more and more people. And so that is where I'm going to leave it for this part of the show. That's fair. That's fair. Adam, any final thoughts on the Bitcoin white paper making its way into your computer? 
I mean, I'm wondering, you know, like, is it just Apple? Is it possible that there are other hidden Easter eggs? I think the term Easter egg is the correct one here. So kudos on that one. And uh, yeah, I mean, so like that's, that's, that's what I'm wondering is where else will we see Bitcoin where else coming up it where it's not expected? Yeah, exactly. Is this a scavenger hunt? Is it the beginning of something bigger? We're not sure. Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, the most important conversation in crypto and Web3, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer creators, builders, founders, brand leaders, entrepreneurs, and more. Use code THEHASH to get 15% off your pass. Visit consensus.coindesk.com or check the link in the show notes. Since the earliest days of the cryptocurrency age, many have looked at successful tokens with a sense of awe and also some sadness for having missed out on the opportunity to build what is called generational wealth. That reaction has led to many tens of thousands of cryptocurrencies being created, most of which really do little or nothing, but which all enter the world, at least, with the hopes of their creators and the folks who speculate on them. For a long time, those projects patterned themselves after Bitcoin or Ethereum. But during the last bull market, as Dogecoin skyrocketed on the back of a billionaire's tweets, the age of dog money had seemingly begun. Fast forward a few years now, and the market is filled with tokens claiming to be the next big meme coin, most of them branded after Shiba Inu dogs, Again, on the back of the Dogecoin token. But is it sustainable? The answer, unsurprisingly, is probably not. Well, I'm going to throw this one to you for first comments. Depends on what you mean by sustainable, Adam, because it does seem that it's at least cyclical and that cycle seems very sustainable because it keeps happening every few years, right? So historically, if you look at Bitcoin's chart, it's also very cyclical. The thing about it that's kind of nice is it maintains its price pretty well. Like it probably drops between like 70 and 50% during a pull down and then it builds right back up. But over time, it's up and to the right and increasingly so. Dogecoin and some of these other coins are also cyclical. The problem with them is they typically draw down all the way back to where they started. So they get really, really low, go down like 90% and then another 90%. So you don't really make any wealth there. But if you stick around and wait for the next uptick, you can make some money here and there. I'm not saying it's a good strategy, but you can do it. That being said, it does look like right now, this lightest mania that we saw from Elon Musk putting the Dogecoin picture on Twitter is kind of coming to an end. Maybe Dogecoin is down 5% over 24 hours, according to Coindesk. Also saying that some of the other ones are starting to draw down a little bit. And I think that's sort of how these things happen, right? Like they get into the attention, the headlines, the bots pick it up, the bots start bidding on these things and it goes up for a little bit. And then the attention wanes. We stop caring about it until next time Elon tweets about it. That's my whole framework for thinking about these things. That's the juice I got. Jen, over to you. Well, total kind of unrelated note that popped up while I was reading the story is, remember when Elon had a Twitter babysitter? That was like mandatory <laughs> by the SEC. And now he yeah. owns Twitter. What mm. world do we live in? I don't know. I don't know how, how many times Elon is just going to continue trolling us with the dog coins, you know, like Tesla. I don't know if Tesla still accepts Doge for merch, but they tried that thing. Now we have Doge on Twitter. You know, degen traders are reacting. The coins going up and down. Like, what is the actual story here? I don't think there's nothing. I think it is completely unsustainable. And which meme coin is going? Like, will you talk about the cycle? But I think every cycle we see different meme coins pump and dump, and it's not one that's just sustainable. It's just this like 
thing, this phenomenon that happens. And someone in the analysis said that there could be long-term growth for the tokens if fundamental features strengthen in the coming months. I think the features that people want exist out there. And you can go out and find the features that you want if you want to play with crypto. I think there's a lot more that goes in to products and fundamental features, like making it accessible and marketing and maintaining momentum and keeping your community engaged. And so, yeah, I'm with the not sustainable ones on this. Adam, I'm going to toss it back to you. I think the dynamic that's going on here is really one of something demonstrating success and then becoming something that people are like, oh, I've missed the opportunity there, which then opens the opportunity to create a new version of it that is much, much, much cheaper, usually has a much larger supply, even of some of these very large supply tokens, so that the per token price itself can be very small. And there's kind of a quirk of human, uh, you know, like the way our brains work with numbers, where it's like when, when the value of a thing is so small, but the supply of it is so large, we can't really square those easily in our in our heads. And so instead, we're just like, oh, this is super cheap without taking into account. Yeah, it's super cheap, but there's 10,000 times more of them than other stuff. So I think the question for me is like, how many steps down that ladder can you go? Right. So like if, you know, Dogecoin is a reaction to things like Bitcoin and Shiba Inu is a reaction to things like Dogecoin and Floki is a reaction to things like Shiba Inu, right? And you just want to keep on going down the list. You kind of have to have these things be successful in order for people to be like, yeah, I should create my own version of them too. So I don't know, it's, a, it's, it's a wild thing. Launching tokens is, is a complicated game that can make you a lot of money if you have few scruples, can make you even more money if you can pull it off. But it just seems like a lot of your life to sink into something where it's basically just allowing people to gamble on your version of a thing. I don't know. I think I'm really boring as I get older. Well, a Dogecoin <laughs> derivative on the hash. That's what you should do. I mean, Doge you can make hash, a lot of money, Doge but Doge hash. Yeah, you can make a lot of money to your point, Adam, but you can also end up in jail. And the SEC doesn't seem to like these things that much. So eventually you could end up buying bars. But before that, you I've already awesome. said on the show, if we end up in jail, I am telling on everyone, like, do not include <laughs> me in any kind of plan. That figures. I'll give up the whole story. Yep. That <laughs> figures. Yeah. Last comment on this from so the expert opinion. I, I always love seeing these Dogecoin articles because, you know, we're, as reporters, you've got to go talk to people and get the inside scoop from the experts on these things. And then you present Dogecoin to an expert and they have to opine on it. And I just don't think they like it either. It's like, okay, well, how am I supposed to give my opinion on this? How do I talk about the tokenomics of Dogecoin? Not a lot there, but you have to give some remarks. So I don't know. I always take comments from the experts on meme coins with a grain of salt. Let's leave that conversation there, though, and go over to India. We're going to talk about the CBDC project, which is now aiming to add up to 1 million users in the country over the next three months. They've already had their pilot program beginning uh, in about 15 countries with 13 banks participating, with about 100,000 customers also participating over the last four months. They're looking to add about 900,000 users, uh, doubling public projections internally towards 1 million users. India has been on the forefront of CBDC plans. Why they're doing that when they have such an anti-crypto stance? I think we could put our tinfoil hats on. I'll throw it on over to Adam for that thought. But they're definitely ahead of a lot of countries in the race to a CBDC. Yeah, thank you. So putting on my tinfoil hat. When you're looking at a country like India, uh, just as with China, you're looking at a country that historically and currently uh, maintains some level of capital controls. And they have those capital controls in place because they don't want money leaving their local system and going elsewhere. They're okay if money comes in from elsewhere, but they don't really want it leaving. 
And so when you look at the world of cryptocurrency, just like we were talking about with that first story today, again, North Korea could use this, right? Well, North Korea could use it also, everybody in India could use it. And if even a small proportion of people in India use it, then suddenly the ability to control money coming in and money going out really kind of goes away. So that's one dynamic that's at play here. Another dynamic is that this is a race, right? Like we're still in the era right now where people are not like, oh yeah, hey, maybe I might want a money that isn't issued by a government that just crashed the last money that I used. And so like we're still in that grace period right now where that, that lesson hasn't yet been felt by the vast, vast majority of people out there. So it's an opportunity for, especially for, again, countries like India to run as fast as they can ahead and try and, in, and try and put in a place, a solution that looks like it offers many of the same advantages that you get from cryptocurrency, but which retains the centralized control that they really value quite a bit um, and need to continue to operate in the, the country in the way that they do. This is also largely true of China. China has been doing largely the same thing. They have a different set of challenges, but it's not too far different. So I'm very curious to see what happens here. I think that if we see significant uptake of central bank digital currencies here, that could be an indication that this is going to be a fight and that we will have central bank digital currencies that are very much out there competing with the world of cryptocurrencies, even if it's not really a direct comparison. And on the other side, if this doesn't go well, then I think you're going to see other nations have a lot of trouble getting adoption uh, for these types of systems unless they really crash the you know, non-tokenized part of their economy and kind of people are, are kind of scared into it. But I, so, I mean, that, that's my read on the situation, but it is certainly complex. Uh, Jen? Yeah, I, the interesting part of the story to me was that they're looking at solving this challenge around making the currency offline, like creating an offline version. And we, we saw in Nigeria with their digital currency, people are having a really hard time accessing cash right now, right? There's a limit to how much cash you can get out of the bank. A lot of people can't access the digital currency because they don't have a consistent access to internet in Nigeria. And it's just like an insane financial mess. It's interesting to see India trying to solve this problem for the people in their own country who don't have access to, to the internet. And once they do solve that problem, I the one thing that I am happy about when I talk about CBDCs is that as this is rolled out inevitably in countries like Nigeria and in countries like India, people will at least have access to their funds. My other thought on this is that maybe this is what is needed for onboarding in crypto in the places that need it the most. Once people get comfortable using wallets, using digital currency, accepting digital currency as payments, and then understand that there is an alternative to the currency that their government has issued, the government that has maybe failed them in one or two ways, then maybe it will be easier for them to fathom a life using crypto. And that is my thought. Adam, I'm going to kick it back to you. Yeah. So uh, with regards to you know the offline transaction part of this, that's called cash. Like we have that. That's literally what <laughs> they're discontinuing. Cash is unavailable. But why is cash unavailable? I mean, like that, I'm can... not defending them. I'm not defending them. <laughs> Sounds can, like it a little bit. You, you can you can go down these rabbit holes, you know, and what you find is that trying to do offline transactions with these types of systems, like it might be possible in theory, but the problem is, is that you have double spend attacks where somebody can spend something one place and then that doesn't get reported and then you spend it somewhere else. And the person who got, I mean, like this is literally what blockchains and stuff like that solve, but you still need that internet connection. Cash really is the solution for things that go beyond that. Although people have certainly tried with paper wallets and, you know, Bitcoin bills and all kinds of other stuff. Like it's just, it's hard. 
It is tough, but it, it's also tough to see Jen being a uh, CBDC apologist on a show. Don't I thought we only had one. Don't say that. Don't I say that. With her. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. Surrounded about, by enemies. It's about okay. behavior. It's, it's about behavior, right? Like if, uh, again, Control like however behavior. people become comfortable with these new technologies, like at a certain point, they're comfortable with the new technologies. I think the big question is, is once they're onboarded into these types of solutions, assuming that there aren't any gigantic problems with them, is there a reason to switch to cryptocurrencies for them? I think, again, that comes down to the behavior that we'll see over the next couple of years. Will? Well, speaking of behavior, you cannot watch The Hash tomorrow if you are a regular subscriber because we'll be off for Good Friday. But we'll see you guys again on Monday. That is The Hash. I'm Will Foxley, joined today by Jen Sinassi and Adam B. Levine. Check us out on the Coindesk Podcast Network. You can listen with your ears. Also check out All About Bitcoin at 3 p.m. Eastern. See you guys on Monday. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.